grace, mercy, and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers and my sisters in Christ. A high school sophomore comes home. He plops his book bag on the floor in the front room. He shuffles his feet over to his room. He nudges the door closed halfway. Without even turning the light on, he slumps onto his bed. His father has been watching this happen. He comes up to him and he says, You all right? What happened? The boy says, Nothing. 24 hours later, the same high school sophomore comes home, hangs his book bag up. He's got a piece of trash in his hand. He pretends it's a basketball. He fakes his dad out. He throws it away in the trash. He's laughing. He's talking smack to his father. He sits down on the, on the couch in the front room with a big grin on his face. His dad says, all right, what happened? He says, hmm, nothing. The truth? This high school sophomore has a crush on a senior girl. And the first day, she didn't pay any attention to him, didn't notice him, didn't look at him, and she he thought for sure that she hated his guts. The second day, though, she smiled at him, she waved to him, she gave him her number, and he was just on cloud nine. And if you find this situation unbelievable that one person's opinion wouldn't make such a dramatic change in someone's mood, then maybe that's just because it's been a while since you were in high school. Maybe you just need to remember growing up, how you lived and died by what look was on your mom's face, or by what mood your dad came home from work in. Someone's mood and how they feel about us has tremendous power over us, doesn't it? And the power that someone's mood, someone's opinion has over us is directly proportionate to how much control they have over us. Scared, why were you scared of your mom's bad moods or your dad's bad moods? It's because they have the power to make your life miserable, right? So a superior officer has the power to assign you menial tasks that will crush your soul or to block your promotion if they just feel a bad way towards you somehow. They have control over you. Now already in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he has demonstrated to us, to the, to the church in Rome and to us modern readers, that there is nobody who has more power over us, more control over us than the God who created us, created us for his purposes, created us with his intentions. And therefore, nobody's opinion matters more than God's which is scary when you look at the words Paul uses in this lesson to describe us. The first way that he describes us is we are powerless. We are powerless to influence God's opinion of us whatsoever in any direction. There is nothing in our hands that we can bring God to make him love us. And that's especially frightening when you look at the other two words that Paul uses to describe us. That we, before God's intervention, were ungodly. We're set against and set apart from God because we are sinners. 
So the person whose opinion matters way more than our crushes, way more than our supervisors, this is God who holds our lives in his hands. He has all the reason in the world to punish us. Which is why the very first words of this lesson are so tremendously powerful, are so jaw-droppingly amazing, because Paul reaffirms to us what he's already said in this letter so far, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Can you imagine the kind of pressure, the kind of anxiety you would be under if it were up to you to prove your worth to God? Can you imagine the kind of pressure, the kind of anxiety you would be under if it were you to make you, loving you worth God's while? Can you imagine the kind of pressure and anxiety that would put on your life if you had to appear before God on your own merits? But you don't. Here you have come before God, not on your own merits, but on Jesus' His merits for you, given to you, the righteousness of Christ, awarded to you through faith, apart from anything you have done. So you have worth in God's sight. You have the guarantee of God's love. And Paul says you have access to God. Now, this is a lot different than my Spotify premium access or your Amazon Prime access. With my account, I can listen to music whenever I want, but there are some times where I don't feel like listening to music. Sometimes you want that free two-day shipping, but sometimes you just don't need anything, so you're not on Amazon very, very much. Access to God doesn't mean God is always there should we ever need him. It's more like VIP access to a luxury suite at a five-star hotel. And God has set you up with that, and that's where you live now. That's your home. You have the luxury of God's grace. You have access to God, which means that the channel between you and God is always open. He always loves you. He, he has guaranteed to you a good relationship, not just when you feel the need for it or don't. It's a constant. God's love for you is a constant in Jesus Christ, and he has connected you to that love through faith. He has caused you to trust in him, caused you to find your security in him. Your relationship with God is good. Now it's as if Paul can already hear the thoughts in our head. It's as if Paul already knows the logical conclusions to which we might take this. He can hear the thoughts in the Romans' heads. If my relationship with God is so good, then why won't my brother talk to me? If my relationship with God is so good, then why does my sister keep sinning against me? If my relationship with God is so good, then why did my check bounce? If my relationship with God is so good, how come I was diagnosed with cancer three years ago? If my relationship with God is so good, why did my best friend die? Paul says, much to the contrary, we glory in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul can tell that suffering is on our minds. Paul can tell that we have this tendency to theologize our relationship with God, but when it comes to brass tacks, we got to make it on our own. That's not the truth. And here's why it's important to remember what we've already discussed. If you don't think that you are powerless before God, that there's nothing that you can do to influence his opinion, to make him love you more or less, if you think it is up to you to serve him and to make loving you worth his while, then how does that change suffering? You go through one bad day and that's not fair. God, after all the work I've done for you, after all the service I'm doing for you, this is how you pay me back. Maybe following God isn't worth it. If you don't see that before God's intervention, you were nothing but ungodly and sinful apart from his grace, then you might look at the suffering in your life and say that you don't deserve it. God, what are you doing? I'm a good person. Why would you do this to me? And worse yet, if you forget that your relationship with God is one of guaranteed grace, you might look at the suffering in your life and say, see, I'm a worthless sinner. God doesn't love me. I do deserve this. And you will think of your suffering as if God is punishing you for your sin, as if there's some debt that has yet to be unpaid. But brothers and sisters, none of these are true. You don't work to get God to love you more. God's relationship with you is guaranteed on the basis of his grace, of his unconditional, unchanging love. So what does that mean about suffering? Well, think of it this way. If God's love is a guarantee, and he always loves you, and his grace is always for you, and he guarantees you a good relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, and if he's also the God that holds your life in his hands, and the God who promises to protect you and preserve you, then at every moment of your life, sufferings large and small, God is protecting you from an infinite number of them at every second. So why does he let one through? Why did God let that bad thing that happened to you, whether it was large or small, whether it was a cancer diagnosis or you just couldn't find a parking spot yesterday and you were late for an appointment, why did God let that happen? Paul says, because he's growing you. He's teaching you. Even your sufferings serve a gracious, loving purpose. Suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope because what is suffering again we're talking about the big stuff and the little stuff every bad thing is a chance to lean into god more to lean into god's grace more to go back to what you know about god and let that guide you Suffering is how God brings the future into the present. Because God promises you future deliverance. He promises that through faith in Jesus Christ, he's going to take you home. He's going to take you to heaven. He's going to give you a peace that you have never known this, uh, on this in life on earth. And suffering in life on earth now causes you to look forward to that hope, causes you to look forward to that peace. And in a sense, it brings it into your presence because you experience some of that peace right now 
as you say, God, I know this is bad. Suffering is bad. We can call it what it is, but I know it's not going to last forever. God, I trust in you to bring me through this. God is teaching you to say that. But it's very, very important for you and me, brothers and sisters, not to lose grace. That's why Paul ends our lesson the way he does. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, God died for the, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I would die for you, a husband declares to his wife on their wedding day. Two weeks later, though, after they're back from their honeymoon, while he's playing video games, she asks him to take out the trash, and he rolls his eyes, and he curses the day that he got married. Because before, he was a bachelor, and he could do whatever he wanted. I would die for you, a brother says to his brother. Although two weeks later, when they have a debt that is unpaid, he sneaks into his brother's wallet and steals back the $5 that he owes him because you owed me. I would die for you, we say, and this is meant to be the height of an expression of love. But let's face it, guys, none of us, very few of us, I should say, will be in a position where that will be asked of us. And so it's a safe thing to say, I won't have to die for you. There are members of the military, of course, who are saying this all the time, who are willing to put their lives on the line, who are willing to give up their lives. But most of us are not in that position. And we prove that maybe that love isn't within us when we aren't even willing to be inconvenienced for each other. We would do things for each other if we consider it worth our while. That's human nature. That's what Paul is saying. Very rarely will someone actually die for someone else, is his argument. But look at what Christ did. He decided, through eternity, to die for you, knowing it would not be worth his while, knowing that it would not be a return on his investment, knowing that you were going to be a sinner. What caused him to make that decision? That's grace, his unconditional, unchanging love. And guess what's happened with that grace that caused Jesus to decide to die for you, a sinner? Hasn't changed, hasn't gone anywhere. The cancer diagnosis doesn't nullify God's grace. The fact that you couldn't find a parking spot yesterday and were late for an appointment doesn't nullify God's grace. Let's turn back to our example of the high school sophomore one more time. What is his goal? What does he want? To date that senior girl? To marry her? To have kids? Then what? It suffice it to say that the high school sophomore's view of marriage with this woman is probably a little bit skewed. If it isn't, and they do date and they do get married, he's going to have to get over that crush mindset, that mindset of rising and falling with her opinion of him, right? Because if you enter a marriage with that, that's not healthy at all. The second that she comes home and criticizes him for anything or expresses displeasure in him for anything, he's going to be in shambles. He's going to be so depressed. He's got to learn at some point 
not to invest so much in her opinion of him in order to make the marriage work, right? That's not true of our relationship with God. You could never, ever overestimate the importance of God's opinion of you. You could never, ever lean into God's opinion of you more than necessary. If you lean into the opinions of other people, then they might change their minds and leave you falling. But God will never change his mind. God has declared on the cross of Christ that he loves you forever and ever, that his grace is for you, and it is unconditional. You can't out-sin it. You cannot sin so much that God will stop loving you. And he has purchased you, made you his through faith, justified you, declared you righteous in Christ. Suffering is your chance. Your bad days, your bad moments, no matter how big your suffering is, that's your chance to lean into that grace even more, to go back to God even more, to trust in God even more, to persevere in God's grace even more. Because that's what we're here for, isn't it? To learn and to know and to grow in God's grace. God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.